Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO at STAT. Eric Edwards, President and CEO of Flow, is here to discuss expanded capabilities for U.S.-based pharmaceutical development and manufacturing in the U.S. Thanks, Angus. At Flow, we're on a mission to reimagine how essential medicines are developed and manufactured. This December, we're opening our new laboratory at the Advanced Pharmaceutical Development Center in Richmond, Virginia. This will enhance our CDMO service offerings for pharma and biopharma customers, including advanced capabilities for small molecule API development with the goal of helping our customers manufacture higher quality, lower cost medicines that make it to market faster. Opening our new state-of-the-art facilities is a key milestone in our efforts to return pharmaceutical manufacturing to the United States and end essential medicine shortages once and for all. For more information, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's P-H-L-O-W-U-S-A.com. This is really new to us. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> thank you. So, welcome. Thank you for coming today. Um, this is the first ever live recording of the First Opinion podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for essays written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, academics, regular folks like you and me. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the podcast is coming to you live today. I'm, so, let me back up. I'm saying this because this is what our listeners are actually going to hear. So the podcast is coming to you live today from STATS headquarters as part of um, STATS Open Doors 2022. It's a series of events put across um, the city. It's a one-day initiative that brings together creative minds from all the diverse um, enterprises that STAT represents and covers. <clears throat> My guest today is Jay Baruch, an emergency physician, professor of emergency medicine at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University, and the author of Tornado of Life, a new book that was just published in September? Yeah, end of, end of August. End of August. Who's quibbling? Um, <clears throat> and Jay was a great sport as the guinea pig for the very first First Opinion podcast in February 2021. Um, it was so new, I'm going to steal a line from E.E. E. Cummings here. Um, the podcast being brand new and consequently a little stiff, um, it was so stiff that Jay actually asked, can we do a mulligan? And so we recorded the podcast a second time, and that one came out well. And it was, um, it was really wonderful that um, we did the mulligan, did the do-over. And um, so here we are <clears throat> a second time with Jay, who's a frequent First Opinion contributor, and this one is um, connected to an essay that he wrote, we published last Monday, I believe, um, about Jay and work. So I'm gonna ask Jay to read the opening of that, um, of that essay. Take it away. Okay, thank you. Please, uh, it's really great to be here and I wanna thank you all for, for showing up. And just to set the record straight, um, I actually 
called Patrick to put a mulligan for that first podcast because I was the one who was like slicing and hooking all my answers. <laughs> um, and I'm the one who needed the, who needed the mulligan. So I just want to go on record and say that. Um, okay, so this is the uh, introduction to this particular essay. The morning was crisp and still dark as I sat in my car in the hospital lot, summoning the will to open the door and leave from my shift in the emergency department. Like many frontline providers in early 2021, I felt pancaked by the two pandemic surges, emotionally and morally. Not getting out of the car wasn't an option. Responsibilities to others demanded I get moving. My overnight colleagues were ready to jump into their beds and waiting patients expected to see a doctor. When I returned home that evening, I opened my laptop and without premeditation, crafted what turned out to be my letter of resignation. I wasn't quitting medicine, I thought, just playing with the idea. But they were tears and they were wet and the sitting in the car thoughts kept playing in my head. Thank you. So that's not your iconic NPR sit in the driveway moment, uh, you know, just to finish a can't miss story. That sounds a little bit like an existential crisis. Um, yeah, it was, it, it, well, just when you're in an existential crisis, it doesn't feel like an existential crisis. <laughs> it just feels lousy. It doesn't telegraph itself. <laughs> and so um, what I discovered uh, uh, from that experience was, was that I, I actually did. I put, put words to, I put words to my thoughts and, and actually crafted my letter of resignation. But, the, but what I discovered to my surprise is that once I did that and, uh, and actually wrote the, wrote the letter and sort of liberated myself and, and prepared myself to leave, um, I actually started looking at my job differently. And uh, it sort of like changed the axis of my attention. And, and, I, and actually writing my letter of resignation hooked me back in um, into, the, into the meaning of medicine. You just screwed up my whole line of questions, Jake. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just, I didn't follow the script. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I, I th was thinking as we were <clears throat> um, going back and forth with the essay that I was hoping that you were going to channel Dan Aykroyd in his uh, Saturday Night Live update skits with Jane Curtin. And your, your letter would go like this, boss, you ignorant jerk. Um, but I, I have a feeling that that's not how you wrote it. What, what did you say? No, I, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, that hospital leaders and people have, have their own challenges and, their, um, and that the moral focus of medicine, which is so important and which has, I think, most in a precarious place right now, um, even before the pandemic, um, must also compete against the challenges that our that our leaders have as far as making money and 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 trying to sort of realize that no margin, no mission. Hmm. There's there's a there is a business element to this. However, um, we're also losing sight of the fact that patients need to come first, and and as providers, we want to be able to care for the patients as we're. Uh, supposed to do and, and would love to do. So take us back for a minute. So this is March, let's say this is early 2021. <clears throat> um, what are you feeling about medicine and work? 
and I'm assuming that I know you're not the spokesperson for all doctors in America, but but I have a feeling that what you were going through, so many other healthcare providers were going through at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm barely a spokesperson for myself. You know, I'm I think my I'm barely an expert on my own experiences, which is why I I write. But after the first wave, like it was all hands on deck, and it was very just invigorating, and for many of us. Uh, you know, Stat had published a piece on moral injury before the pandemic mm. that received so much attention. I think a lot of us were feeling morally injured even before the pandemic. And the first wave happened and it was like this wave of sort of of meaning. And this is why we're here and everyone was coming together. Um, and then the second wave was just a little bit less so. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, not again. And we got to gown up. Um, and uh, and then when that <sighs> As each instance, and it wasn't going away, and it kept coming back, it became from fatigue to sort of anger to frustration. And, um, and I think it was like an emotional, a little bit of an, like an emotional Rorschach's test. Hmm. So this is, you know, fast forward. Well, we're in 2021. What, what you're talking about <clears throat> You and your colleagues were still dealing with a pretty brand new virus. People weren't exactly sure how it was going to affect the people who got it. Some got really sick. Many died. Some sniffles and a cold. And so it was this variable virus. You were originally dealing with shortages of personal protective equipment. There's no treatments that are effective, virus is just miles away. That's a lot to deal with. Yeah, but like I, I wrote in a piece at that time that uh, what I was most fascinated by, and again, like all these struggles, like reveal, we're surprised by what we discover by some of the obstacles that we face. And what I discovered during the first wave, at least, is that when we knew so little um, and going to work was a little bit frightening uh, and we didn't know what we were dealing with. I actually felt safest in the emergency department, like where I, where I was most at risk, I actually felt safest. And a lot of that had to do with the, the, the really immense and great trust I had in my colleagues who I work with. You, you wrote in that essay, and it's a, it's a line I remember, but I, I wrote down just in case I was going to forget, um, that you were wearing... N95s over and over again. You had to put them in a little paper bag with your name on it. And when you went back to the hospital, you like checked out your old N95 mask. And you wrote, <clears throat> after a day or two, they take on a mysterious odor. I know what that smell is now. It's mistrust. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, at at that time, you know, I, I, you know, we were in a particular particular moment where you know we were getting competing messages from our, you know, national leaders at the time, uh, from you know, healthcare leaders. We were getting so many different messages, which I think is just really interesting when I look back about what we did so great about the pandemic, uh, discovering what this virus is, how it sort of is trying to unpack how it operates, um, getting politicians and leaders and industry and economists and, you know, anthropology. We got so many different fields 
um, together to, and then to come up with a vaccine in record time. But what we didn't do, the one group of people we left out were actually narrative experts. And I feel when I think about communication and what we could have done better and what we're, what we're dealing with now, I think, is the repercussions of a, narr a narrative crisis um, from the pandemic. So we needed the storytellers and the griots. Well, I'm uh, as conflict of interest, I must say that <laughs> I'm conflicted here. But yes, I go, I think we needed not just more storytellers, but the, the fact that we focus so much on data and data is so important for certain for certain questions right but it presumes certain things right which is the fact that this is an objective thing and this is the reality but the fact is, is that in what we discovered about the vaccine you know challenges is that stories you know stories are more powerful than data <laughs> i hate to tell this like you know with data like we we have studies and they have to be proven statistically significant but we believe stories on the if they're a believable story we believe it um and you know story is experience package and emotion um hmm. and you know we this is what we, and what are stories essentially is basically how we how we deal with trouble how we how we face trouble, how we um, succumb or surmount trouble. Um, and it's the most basic human experience and it allows us to understand the experience of another. Hmm. Um, and I feel that, you know, without stories, we didn't truly understand how other how, uh, different groups of people were experiencing the pandemic and actually were thinking about the, the vaccine. Well, right. You're not going to convince somebody to get a vaccine based on data. That's not gonna not gonna do it. I think it's it's shown. Mm. <laughs> you know, and it's it's real, so interesting. You know, I feel like you know, like when you don't, someone doesn't speak a language, and so you just talk louder. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's like and we we sort of all do it as some somehow like volume is going to translate. Mm. And I felt like you know because we have the tools of data, um, the people, a lot of people who were you know we who were in positions of, of communication put, put so much trust in it because that was their tool. Mm. That's the tool they're comfortable with. And, um, but it wasn't necessarily, I think, the, the only tool. I'm not saying it was the right tool, but it was the only tool that we could have been using um, during, the, during the pandemic. Mm. So between March 2020 and when you wrote your letter, uh, a, a lot happened, a lot was going on. Um, did it take a year or longer for you? Was that an accretion of just bad stuff? Or is that Jay Baruch a deliberate man or both? I, I, I wish I can be wise about that. I, I will say that, uh, that I feel like going, going into the pandemic and sort of showing up, I think a lot of us felt like Afterwards, because we were showing up and because we were we were doing the things we were doing and taking on the risks we were doing and trying to do our best in these challenging times, the things would somehow get easier or people would recognize that. Mm. And unfortunately, you know, we whether physicians, nurses, it just didn't happen. Um, and then you know, people when we just lost we lost staff. There's a confluence of factors. You know, you you lose staff and. And when I mean staff, I mean 
anything from you know physicians and nurses to to like techs and our unit secretaries and everyone is equally important mm. you know um and then you sort of you know you lose staff you don't have beds and you have crowding and you have all the people who delayed care or couldn't get care during that pandemic and they came back so much sicker like so much sicker and you have the, the data that shows the rise of mental health problems mm. and substance use and violence and i think all those things were just little 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 things along the way that were accruing hmm. and you wrote that you used the the word um the act of writing that letter which you felt was your quote ticket out of medicine didn't have that effect you alluded to that at the beginning what happened like i said i just started looking at because all those little obstacles i just mentioned you know are <laughs> were not positive things. <laughs> they were challenges to what we needed to do, which, which was provide the best possible patient care and care for patients. And not just, this is not just providing the best high quality care, but actually just providing basic care. I wrote, the, you know, I wrote this piece about, we could even provide blankets sometimes. The people were waiting for God knows how many hours. Um, and there's little things that felt not like medical care, but like what humans should provide for other humans mm -hmm. in distress. <laughs> and, and it was really challenging to be able to do that, caring for people in hallway beds, mm -hmm. you know, in, in view of other, other patients. And it was terrible. But what happened was after I wrote the letter, I just started noticing the things that I was not seeing before. And, and I was acknowledging those things that we were doing that was really powerful. You know, the, the conversations we were having with patients, the little gestures that we were able to do that were that were greeted with gratitude or that made us feel good that we were of giving and caring. So, you know, it wasn't the fact that those negative things went away, those obstacles went away. It was just the fact that I started focusing differently and I was focusing on those on those elements that really sort of I were there all along. Mm. Um, but for some reason, uh, just the negative stuff took my attention away. The tug of negativity. The tug of negativity well. took away from so much that was positive and meaningful. Um, and actually, there was elements of that we were able to control. There were, there were mm. gestures of, of human connection and compassion and empathy and care that we were able to hold on to. And they were sometimes these small, small moments, but they were there. And I, and I started paying attention to that more. You wrote, and I can't remember who you were you were quoting here, but but the act of looking makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, it was a, um, the, the John Berger, the right. critic, and uh, and his and his ways of seeing, and he talks about like where we where we look. I'm paraphrase like like the act of looking is a choice. Like we choose what to pay attention to, we mm -hmm. choose what we see, um, and we're not, not realizing it. It's one of those choices that sort of goes on unconsciously, and we're not aware of it. Um, and I just became aware of it. Mm. Uh, and it was, and, it, and I, and that was totally, you know, unexpected. And I, I find that was most interesting and most difficult about why it was so hard. Um, part of it was attention, but part of it was the fact that some of the really powerful moments were inextricably, inextricably entwined with the really challenging moments. <laughs> What do you mean? Like I, the situation I 
I quoted in the in the in the piece was uh, we had this gentleman who was in cardiac arrest who came in and uh, an extremist and went into cardiac arrest and we were doing ACLS on him and and it was you mean chest compressions and chest stuff com- yeah. yeah I'm sorry chest compressions and and it was a overnight and it was so so busy we had i can't tell you how many people were in the waiting room and and in in our other sort of ambulance triage area we had all these other people waiting and we had a lot of people who have alcohol use disorder who have mental health problems who are homeless or without housing and there there's no other place to put them so they're there too like right outside the door and as we're as we were sort of doing calling the code and the families there and saying no more um, and providing sort of end of life care and, and having a moment of silence for this patient. We're hearing this, these three people outside the door who are intoxicated, yelling and screaming and carrying on. And, and at this moment, as I wrote in the piece is, you know, it was such a privilege to be in this moment with this with this family where sort of life, with life ends and life's, you know, this bridge where life ends. And, um, and at the same time, like we are the, the, the de facto home for these, for the, for these, for these patients without housing who are in our waiting room because it's a, it's a terrible night and they have no place else to go. And so we were both really empowered and it was, it was a moment of great meaning to have these moments, to share these experiences with families at the end of their life, while also being somewhat ashamed and embarrassed that there was yelling and screaming that was breaking the silence of this solemn moment. But at the same time, like that's what we do too. Like we're like this, we are the, the home for people who don't have a home. So that's what we do. That's what we do. What you described, that act of looking, reminded me of you hear stories all the time about people who are diagnosed with cancer or some other potentially fatal disease. And and that act of facing the end of life often has that eye-opening effect as well. It felt very similar to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And and I feel like there's... What's at the heart of it is this sense of that of realizing that after this conversation, someone's life or their family's life is going to be different as a result of this mm-hmm. conversation. You're gonna you're gonna move on to the next patient, right? Like you're gonna you're gonna have a whole ER full of people. You have a, a hordes of people in the waiting room, and you have to give this moment its due. You know, because this moment is something that this person, this family is going to remember forever. Like their life is going to change. And I think I wrote in one of our early pieces how, you know, we have this special like family room where we give sort of bad, bad news. or and, um, and it always strikes me like when we leave that room, how like even just the light in the hallway and how laughter might sound to a family when they're leaving this, leaving this room, when their world just seems different now because of the information, the news that, um, that I had to give them. Well, that was the piece that you called yourself an ambassador of nightmares. An ambassador of nightmares. 
It's a lot to think about. I mean, it's a, that's a hard, that's a hard thing, I think, to make part of your job, knowing that that's part of your job. But it's, it's, it's both so hard and, um, and also it's a, it's, it's an experience of great connection to and meaning if you do it well and, um, and to be very, you know, very honest, like sometimes you just don't know what to expect. You don't know what well means, um, uh, because giving and giving this, giving such news oftentimes is predicated on like the relationship that the loved ones or the family has had with the patient. You know, so sometimes the news is, is devastating. And sometimes the news is met with like, like a, like a shrug, like I knew this was going to happen. It was mm. just a matter of when, um, I also have had experiences where someone jumped on me and forced me to go back into the room because they weren't willing to take that news. And I had families who were like, serves them right. Oh. And now they're sticking us with a bill. At least. Huh. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I always find like the, oftentimes the response, the response to such news is oftentimes predicated on on the relationship, the type of relationship people have had to the loved one. Um, other things as well, but there are a lot of unpredictable things that factor into such conversations, and which make, which makes it so uh, so wonderfully interesting because you, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, but I think when it's done well, at least. The very, the very least that patients and families should feel is that there's like, <laughs> like there's some semblance of a human heart <laughs> um, at the end, at this end of the conversation, uh, and and that the, that we might not be perfect, but we're doing our best. You know, you wrote in the essay, in the essay, some of this is burnout related, and you were talking about burnout. Doctors and nurses are leaving the profession in record numbers, others are getting sick and they're stopping work. You, you wrote that, um, quote, for all the burnout studies and headlines about physicians leaving the field, there's less attention on those of us searching for reasons to stay. I thought that was interesting. If you were uh, a researcher, how would that research, what would that look like? You know, looking for, asking the people about reasons to stay. Yeah, so that so there's there's a there's a, a an assumption in that question, which I which I call out a little bit in the piece, which is like the value of research and what what numbers capture, right? And what what experiences can't be captured by numbers, and and I found and one of the challenges is that we're seeing all this research being published about like burnout. And I, one of the studies I quoted in the, in the piece was from the Mayo Clinic's proceeding that said like some 60 plus percent of mm. physicians um, had experienced one of the elements of burnout. And, and I feel like that's so, and I always sort of don't know how to respond to that because even if we have a global definition of what burnout is, like the reason why I might be burned out might be very different from the reason why someone else might feel burned out, right? And, and I feel like by trying to capture this complex experience, this, con 
this this really complex mental experience, emotional experience. Sometimes numbers don't quite capture that. Um, and that's what I found during the pandemic. I found that patients, like my colleagues, doctors, nurses, all step, they were sort of being, this is burnout, this is what we should do for burnout. When oftentimes what they wanted to do is just share their experiences of what they were going through. Oh, we're back to stories. Back to stories, you know. And what I thought is interesting is that one of the elements of, you know, burnout, you know, there's like depersonalization and lack mm. of personal accomplishment and emotional exhaustion, loss of control. But this idea about depersonalization, I think, is so interesting because I find that oftentimes the attempt to study it, and I'm not, and believe me, like I just want to go on record. I'm not saying we shouldn't be getting data and studying things. Duly noted. Um, <laughs> I am just going to get that out there because, however, however, I also feel that by sometimes taking complex emotional experiences and putting numbers to it and trying to categorize it rather than allowing people to go deeper into themselves and trying to, to, to tap into their own emotional experiences and being curious about that and realize that there are deep experiences that can't be captured. By trying to study it, I almost feel like we're almost worsening the depersonalization that's actually part of this thing called burnout, which is depersonalization. Mm. So I think it's interesting. I mean, this is just yeah. my, this is the N of one myself, and I'm an imperfect expert on myself. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned that this burnout, people leaving the field, is also paradoxically being met by this influx of people who want to get into medical school, record admissions, record applications for admissions this year. What's up with that? Do you know? I, I thought that was so fascinating. That, you know, during the literature, when we're seeing in the newspapers about all this burnout from healthcare providers, there was, there were studies and there were reports from the, um, that there were, from the, from the class of 2025, there were record, like record numbers of applicants to medical school. I mean, I think the report was there's usually like a 3% rise and there was like a 17% mm, rise that's average. And that's extraordinary. And I'm like, and I was like, why is anybody paying attention to this? And the reason why I thought it was really just fascinating is that it's such a paradox. You have people who are leaving in droves. Then you have young people who are applying to medical school, like taking on debt, doing all this work, applying to medical school. And, and what I thought is so extraordinary is that there's something about medicine that is inherently meaningful and important. And I know there were theories about the, the reasons why people were applying, whether it was the fact that, you know, frontline providers were showing up and the sense of service, the, uh, the fact that a lot of um, healthcare professionals were becoming leaders and becoming leading voices in, 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 um, in the pandemic and in addressing healthcare equity. Um, which was incredibly important. Um, and then there was that, that Fauci effect about you know, the, the importance of Dr. Fauci. Um, but, I, but I also feel that there was, these students are smart. These people who are applying are smart. The, the, people, the students I work with who are applying to medical school, like not only have 
serious brain power, but they're on social media. So like there's nothing that's lost to them. Right. Like they know the problems that's facing and they want this. And so what is it about those of us who are already part of, who are in the house of medicine? What are we taking for granted? You know, what are we not paying attention to um, that perhaps we should be because it's there for us, like we're there. Um, and that was part of, I, that was part of my sort of, sh I wanna say sharpening my lens of attention, but broadening my lens of attention hmm. a little bit because I thought the whole, that whole experience was fascinating. Interesting. You, um, so we're, we're about to face a third winter with COVID um, overlaid on all the other winter infections. Do you think it's going to be different than the previous winters? Oh, different. You know, <laughs> what is the polarity? Magic of that? ball. What here. is the polarity <laughs> of that of that term? Different. Uh, you know, right now, you know, we're starting to see. You know, we have RSV. Yes. You know, we're starting to see flu, um, and it's we're seeing record numbers of you know, boarding and. Hospitals, you know, where hmm. you know there was that article in the Globe, you know, this last week about the fact that what there were seventeen thousand openings in healthcare in, hmm. in Massachusetts. So, you know, we're just, there's a staffing problem. There's a staffing problem. There's a bed problem, uh, and a lot of the challenges I alluded to earlier still exist. And I, you know, I must tell you that that the for the most part, you know, people coming into the emergency department, my emergency department. Uh, are sick, like they're, and they're not just sick. They're dealing with social issues. They're dealing with substance use issues, mental health issues. There's care issues, like this, and and so I feel like we're going to run into like a little bit of a physics problem, like an in and out problem. Hmm. Um, and a lot of the patients who are in hospitals, we need to get them out. The reason why they're taking up beds is because. A lot of them need to go to nursing homes or care facilities, and they don't have beds because mm. they don't have staff or for whatever reason. So I feel like adapt, adaptability and flexibility is going to be you know, probably the buzzword for this, this winter. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm worried, you know, um, and part of it, the reason why I'm worried too is the fact that the people I counted on before are gone. You know, with years of experience, years of emergency, years of experience in the emergency department, and it's not like the younger staff members who come on aren't wonderful. They are, but there's something you can't you can't quite put a value on like a nurse with 10, 15, 20 hmm. years experience. They are gold. They are absolute gold. You know, it's not about tasks. It's not about knowledge. You know, caring is like jazz. You know, it's like trying to understand the, the vagaries and the ill-defined messiness that is medicine and knowing how to respond to that. And, you know, nothing replaces experience. And so it's going to be interesting. It's like, I'll, I'll, I'd like to put a, to be continued dot, dot, dot um, at the end of my answer. Mm. I was going to ask you how you'll be different, but I think that's a tough question. And maybe one for, you know, discussing over a beer later. I, 
Uh, much later. No, I, mean, I mean, not like lunchtime or anything. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I, so it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that's a, two, that's a dot, dot, dot question as well. Uh, it's, it's a day-to-day thing. Like, I, I, as I wrote in the piece, it's like, you know, each day I go into my shift saying, you know, why should I come back tomorrow? And of course, it's, it's both a, a very explicit question and also a little metaphorical mm. cone I present to myself. You know, it's like, why should I come back tomorrow? And, and what that does is forces me to, to answer that question. <laughs> and, and again, that's sort of forcing me to pay attention differently. We'll see how everything unfolds as the, as the, as the winter you know, moves. I mean, I'm, I'm an old body. I'm close to 30 years of doing this. This writing this piece was a meaningful experience for me. Like that itself was a reminder of those of just to pay attention mm. um, and to focus on those things that are important to you and try to sort of recognize the challenges without being beaten up by the challenges. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that question, but I, but I feel like it's, a, it's going to be a question that we're all going to somehow answer together. Mm. And I have to say that, you know, despite all the, again, like, it's not going to fit into a neat narrative. Like, it's going to be a messy narrative. And I feel like a lot of the narratives that we're facing now, like I mentioned earlier about like, the rise of, like, the terrible boarding problem and, and the rise of ED violence and anger um, is also countered by the fact that like people have been also been incredibly patient and kind. Mm. Like people who waited for like unconscionable amount of hours when I apologize, because that's the most important, like, like the beginning of almost every sentence <laughs> when I see a patient is like, hey, I'm Dr. Baruch, I'm sorry mm. um, about the wait. Is that people for the most part are understanding and kind. And and unfortunately, the, 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 the situation is that <laughs> Are less are less positive, and that go that are that are le- or the pay- the personalities are sharper and perhaps more demanding. Again, ring ring furthest in your mind, and hmm. you remember that. Um, but I, even yesterday, when I was working, when I go to work tonight, overnight tonight, you know, most of most of the patients I will be dealing with will be very very sick, and and I think very very kind and understanding. Well, you know, your essay came and this conversation comes at a, <clears throat> an interesting time for me. Um, I announced last week, made public that I'm going to retire um, from STAT and <laughs> getting teary already. <laughs> um, my boss, Rick Burke, is probably thinking, just do what Jay did. Send in the letter and then keep going to work. <laughs> And, um, you know, I have to tell him that's not going to happen, Rick. Um, but thank you so much for, for being here today, um, for writing the essay and yeah. for working with me. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. And I just want to say before um, that, you know, writing is a way of thinking for me on the page. And, um, and of every single essay that I've sent to Stat that Pat has accepted um, has not only become better as a result of Patrick's attention and his editorial acumen, but he's also forced me to think deeper and to go to those tough places 
and to be very specific in my writing, which, which again is to be specific and honest in your thinking. And, and I feel like, you know, writing has helped me during these challenging times. It always has, but specifically during this, during the last couple of years. And, um, and I got to thank Patrick to help me along in that. So I just want to say thank you. And then a hoot. <clears throat> so we're going to have to cut it off there. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I, if anybody wants to stay, Jay and I aren't going anywhere for a while. Um, should I do the, the wrap up now so it's the same? <clears throat> All right. So... <clears throat> Thank you for putting up with our shenanigans today as we recorded the podcast in front of a live audience. Extra kudos this week to Teresa Gaffney, our producer, and to Alyssa Ambrose, our senior producer. Rick Burke is the executive producer. Thanks to Jason Heathcote, Stats Head of Community, and to Rose Montera, Stats Community Coordinator, for all the work she did organizing this event. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which first opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to statnews.com. Uh, sorry, you can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the white water ahead.